This is Bob Cudmore, and this is Episode 3 of the podcast of my Year 2000 humor book, You Can't Go Wrong, Stories from Neuro New York. In this particular episode, we're going to hear about spring, summer in Nero, also we'll hear about gambling in Nero, and what went on at Cemetery Hill. Nero is bowled over by the arrival of spring. Bowling helps define life in Nero. In Nero, we do things differently than people in more upscale areas, even in the way we officially mark the passing of the seasons. During the cold weather months, my friend Disease Cotter plays cards every Friday night at his men's club, the Sons of St. Adelbardio. Since the bowling season began in the fall, every one of the Friday night card players has contributed $2 a week toward the cost of a spring banquet. The connection between the card game and the bowling season puzzled me. Many of the card players bowl, of course, but some don't. Even Disease, a veteran kegler, strained his back shoveling snow from his driveway into the street and hasn't been a regular bowler this season. Disease explained, everyone knows when the bowling season starts and when it ends, so we always pick those dates to start and stop our banquet collection. The league bowling season in Nero, you see, is sacred, something like Ramadan in Muslim nations, the high holy days in Israel, or Lent in Catholic countries. Bowling has helped define life in Nero. Even though bowling, like everything else, has declined, the sport is still important. Good bowlers generally get more regular and better press than the politicians, and the bowlers don't have to make appearances at wakes and ribbon cuttings to maintain their status as local celebrities. To everything there is a season. There is a time to bowl, and a time to put the bowling ball in the closet next to the ice fishing gear. Disease and his friends have their banquet in April, collecting more than $30 per man. That's enough money for more fun than you want to know about at the Four Clover, or even at a more expensive restaurant, one that treats chicken wings as an appetizer and not a main course, for example. After a persistent winter, people in Nero are glad to see the end of bowling season, the end of winter card games. Winter is, by and large, the most depressing time in Nero, where the buildings are not quaint, but functional. Nero's buildings keep out the elements, but do not improve the landscape. More painted tires than designer flags line the city streets. Nero in winter is the kind of dismal upstate New York community that makes travelers glad to reach Lenox, Stockbridge, or other quaint New England places where shops are scented with bayberry candles and more homes are covered with clabbered than with asphalt siding. The hot dog stand outside of Nero opens in April, another sign of spring, giving people a new spot to grab a reasonable bite to eat, they don't want to sit inside the dingy four-clover tavern on a bright sunny day. New leaf growth on the trees is finally giving some blessed cover to the more run-down parts of Nero. Life is good, or at least better than it was, when spring is here. Summer in Nero, when the creek used to smell. A sickening and distinctive smell used to come from the Keep the Munda Creek that runs through Nero, the former sock-making capital of the world. When the sock mills were running full tilt, industrial waste went into the creek in a steady stream. Now that the mills are closed, the Keep the Munda doesn't smell, even in the summer. Back in the good old summertime in Nero, the sock mills were awfully hot places to work. The valley air was stagnant, few people had air conditioning. People who could afford to rented camps in the Adirondacks for a week, usually during the annual mill shutdown right after the 4th of July. 
It was an effort to take everything to camp for such a short time, but that was what the working person could afford. In Nero itself, people sat on their porches or in front of their houses on hot summer nights, the men in undershirts and the women wearing little as possible. People sat on kitchen chairs. If the lawn chair had been invented, it had not made its way to Nero. Whatever the young people were doing, riding bikes or playing kickball on the street, some older people didn't like it. Some members of every generation see no redeeming features in the next crop, and there are always some youngsters willing to torment their elders. Roadhouses were popular warm-weather destinations for Nero's teens in the days of the 18-year-old drinking age. Putting a tavern near the woods off a secluded country road added to alcohol's already substantial appeal. There were drunken drivers and more than a few accidents. Summer was a time when young people tried out adult vices, smoking, drinking, and sex. Cars were favorite spots for sex, as were the woods around the roadhouse. Because I was friends with the mayor's daughter, said my old friend, Disease Cotter, I used to work summers for the Nero Department of Public Works. Disease and I were enjoying an ice cream the other day, the cream and cone, right outside Nero. Disease said, sometimes we worked hard for the city, other times we hid out from nosy citizens and aldermen. If you worked the early garbage collection shift, you got off work in time to get to the track in August. One morning, Disease told me, my friend Jim and I sneaked into a little shed at the DPW garage just before roll call for the day's assignments. We were worn out from a binge at the roadhouse the night before, thought we'd take a nap for a few minutes. We didn't wake up until after lunchtime. One of the foremen was still at the DPW garage when we stumbled out of the shed. The foreman was mad, but he knew he'd get blamed along with us for our missing roll call. He had to sweep the garage until everybody came back like that was what he had planned for us to do that day all along. When it was really hot when I was a kid, my mother would make iced tea. She brewed tea in a big metal pot, added lemon and sugar while the tea was still hot. She put the ice in just before dinner. The sight of that pot cooling on the counter was a welcome sign when I came in from riding my bike on hot summer evenings. When Ma made iced tea, I could drink that along with the grown-ups. If it was cool enough for coffee for the grown-ups, though, my folks wouldn't let me drink coffee. I had to drink milk. To this day, I love iced tea. Some vices are more defensible than others. All it takes is a dollar and a dream. Nero had places where men went in but never came out. Many people in Nero hope the government will make it possible for their city to have a casino. A casino would revitalize the nearly empty downtown mall, although critics say a casino would bring false hope and trouble to a city that has had more than its share of failed ventures and broken dreams. The state lottery, off-track betting, and bingo are very popular in Nero. Nero even has an historical claim as a gambling center. Before the state became so involved in games of chance, illegal gambling was almost a profession in Nero. Certainly, it was more than a pastime. When people saw you on the street in the morning, they didn't ask about the weather. They asked cryptically, what came out, meaning the daily number. The illegal numbers game was huge in the sock mills. Three-digit numbers were written on each date of the wall calendars and barbershops. Every factory floor had its numbers taker. If you won, your guy would stop by your flat with your winnings, cash, of course. The old bookmakers gave better odds than the state does with the lottery, but there was a price paid for gambling in old Nero. An uncle of mine worked as a runner for the bookies and had a bad habit of not always placing the bets people made with him. Cash in hand, the lure of a couple of shots at the Four Clover Inn was strong for Uncle Yates. Most times, the horses didn't come in and nobody was the wiser. Once, my uncle was supposed to place a bet for a local housewife. He didn't. The horse finished first. 
and the housewife went to the Nero cops to have my uncle arrested. The cops told her, look, lady, if we arrest him, we got to arrest you. This whole thing is illegal. The fact that the housewife thought the police should regulate illegal gambling showed how normal and legitimate the enterprise seemed to be. Occasionally, the state police would raid the bookies, and the state police tried to keep the Nero police from knowing about it. Telling the Nero police would have been like taking an ad in the paper. After one state police raid, the Nero police chief spoke on the local radio station in his daily report on who was arrested for what and kept repeating, This was a state police raid. Nero police knew nothing. I emphasize we knew nothing about this raid. People who grew up in Nero were surprised to go to little shops in other cities that really were what they were supposed to be. Many newsstands, shoe repair shops, candy stores, and the like in Nero were fronts for bookie joints. From the number of newsstands in Nero, you would have thought it was the most well-read city in the state. Nero was full of places with dark windows where men went in but never seemed to come out. In fact, one complaint about Nero's new off-track betting parlor in the downtown mall is that wives and other interested parties can peer inside through the spacious windows and see who's gambling. One place in the old days that took numbers sold ice cream. If strangers were in the store, people placed their bets by ordering six vanillas, three chocolates, and two strawberries, or, or whatever. One local story was that somebody once brought a pair of shoes to Otto the shoemaker. Otto didn't fix shoes, of course, but ran his book in a shop that had some shoemaking gear. He set the shoes out to be fixed. There was both a great appeal and great danger in gambling. As strong as the appeal and danger of the other controversial preoccupations of many Neroites, drinking and sex. Years ago in Nero, people squandered the money they made in the sock mills with the bookies. Today, many Neroites are on public assistance and people think differently of using welfare money to gamble. Even though the economic good that casinos will bring is probably overstated, gambling profits can be put to good use. The state lottery helps pay for the government and some parochial schools are kept afloat by bingo. Some of the loudest critics of the expansion of casino gambling come from Saratoga County. If you ask me, it takes monumental gall for people who have benefited mightily from a racetrack to oppose another kind of gambling. If Nero gets a casino, I'll probably go there at least once. It's part of my past, and hey, you never know. The View from Cemetery Hill. Hard Times at the Cemetery. The best view of Nero is from Cemetery Hill. During late May and June, the small valley of the Keep Them Under Creek below the cemetery bursts with glowing shades of green. Even the abandoned sock mills look halfway decent from this elevated perspective. On Cemetery Hill, Nero's mill-owning families, the Waldorfs, Foots, and Yarnworths, share their final resting space with many of their less affluent Protestant employees. Nero has separate cemeteries, of course, used by Catholics and Jews. The Waldorfs and the Foots maintain large mausoleums, which look like Greek temples. The Yarnworths have adopted a burial style that is less ostentatious, but more awe-inspiring. There are two symmetrically arranged clusters of graves, where descendants of the Yarnworth brothers, William and Edgar, are buried. The effect of the grave clusters is to reinforce the hierarchy of Nero's first family. It is as if an eternal board of directors meeting has been called, and William and Edgar, as usual, are at the head of the table. The Yarnworths came from England to found an industry that defined the economic life in Nero for the first two-thirds of this century. Whether they are spinning in their graves, witnessing Nero's decline of the past three decades, is a matter of frequent local conjecture. Nero's milltown heyday was in the past, and donations to maintain Cemetery Hill have dwindled. 
Ironically, one effect has been to make the cemetery as difficult to enter as an upper-class fraternal lodge. There are winding, rutted roads lined on each side by ditches that threaten to swallow visiting cars or even hearses. It is not an easy place for a funeral during winter or early spring. Cemetery Hill is not nearly as well-maintained as the nearby ethnic Catholic cemetery, which also boasts more elaborate floral displays. The glue that holds an ethnic group together apparently makes for more effective upkeep than the ties that bind Protestant entrepreneurs and their employees. Floral tributes and American flags peak Memorial Day weekend at Cemetery Hill, then decline as summer begins and hot weather takes its toll. Many people visit the cemetery in the spring, summer, and fall. The saddest visitors are the parents, tending flowers around stones, depicting their deceased children as little lambs, small angels, even an occasional teddy bear. There are bereft widows, widowers, daughters, some sons, who make gravestone beautification a working tribute to the deceased. They come with car trunks full of gardening gear, hoses, rakes, shovels, even fertilizer. Some come every day. Sixty years ago, the matriarch of one of Nero's Protestant immigrant families died an early, if expected, death from what they used to call dropsy. The first piece of land this family owned in the New World was a burial plot. With trolleys and buses, Cemetery Hill was an easy place to visit in the 30s and 40s, and the family came often to pay respects to their mother. They usually spent the afternoon and brought a picnic lunch, which they enjoyed on the grass beneath the huge shade trees. The youngest grandson remembers playing hide-and-seek with his older sister among the trees, tombstones, flags, and flowers. One mausoleum was built right into the side of a small hill. You could run up one side of the mausoleum and down the other. Why the older people were sometimes sad or angry in such an interesting place made no sense to that little boy. And that's episode three of the podcast of my book, You Can't Go Wrong. I hope you'll be taking a listen to episode four.